We are in Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to be reading verses 21 through 33. So Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Trinity Community Church. It is great to see you. I'm coming in a little hot, so this is good. This is great. It is great to see you. Love this church. One of the things that I love most about this church uh, right now is our our age diversity, our, our life stage diversity. We have a lot of college students here. We have a lot of young professionals here. We have late career folks here. We have, you know, young children. We have, uh, we have married folks without kids, which are, you know, dinks, dual income, no kids. We have empty nesters, a lot of uh, families along the way. And even though we have a long ways to go in terms of age diversity, for being two and a half years in, I feel like we're doing okay. And the beautiful thing about this age diversity is that it sort of protects us from a simplistic view of marriage and family. It keeps us from a, a sort of reduced vision of marriage and family. And so when we come to a text like Ephesians 5, one of the classic texts on marriage in the scriptures, it allows us to look at it from a little bit more holistic lens. Now we have uh, three weddings in our congregation this spring and this summer. I know we have at least six babies in the womb, as well as uh, two more families that are in the adoption process. By the way, if I find out that you're pregnant, I begin to count you as two people for attendance purposes. That's uh, our pro-life uh, church planning strategy. We have people that are kind of all over the spectrum in terms of marriage and, and family, and I love that. And I will admit something that pastors normally don't admit, and uh, we'll have to strike this from the recording probably, but as a pastor, I only have one wedding message. Like for all the weddings I do, I just have one uh, wedding message. I'm not writing a unique message for all the different weddings that I do. Uh, and so if you're a member here at Trinity, automatically, yes, I will officiate your wedding. Uh, but if you expect a unique snowflake of a wedding homily, um, just don't attend any other Trinity weddings, basically. And in this one single wedding homily that I have, I always ask people to share with me ahead of time what they love most about their fiancé. It's a lot of fun. I have people email me their responses, and I, I don't let the other fiancé see, and then I, I read their answers out loud in the ceremony. 
And I love this because people always say what I love most about my fiance is her smile, her sense of humor, and her laugh. Or maybe what I love most about my fiance is his kindness and his gentleness, and he's so compassionate when I'm not doing well. Or maybe I love that my husband is from Kansas City because St. Louis guys are just unbearable. And I always point out that nobody responds with, like, you know, I I love my fiance's uh, employability. I love that they're in a high growth industry with a degree from an elite institution. I love that at a young age, their 401k is off to a great start. Because see, in, in true love, what, what matters most is not what you're like in your best efforts and your greatest accomplishments, but true love is being loved for who you are and your weaknesses and at your worst. And what is this but an illustration of the gospel? The true love is, is love that is unconditional, that washes over us, not because we've earned it, but simply because it's given as a gift. And in this famous, well-known passage from Ephesians, we're going to look at marriage, and you don't have to be married for this passage to apply to you. Marriage is a huge part of life. It's a big part of church. It's a big part of society. And we're also going to speak to singleness and to family to a certain degree as well. This is the primary text on marriage in the Bible. And so three things we're going to look at today. The purpose of marriage, the possibility of wholeness, and the profound mystery. So the purpose of marriage, the possibility of wholeness, and the profound mystery. So first thing is this purpose of marriage. And actually, there are three purposes of marriage described right here in Ephesians 5. And so this point will be the longest of the three. If you're following along and this takes 20 minutes, that doesn't mean it's a 60-minute sermon. I'll just tell you that up front. But this point is longer than the other two combined. So here are the three purposes of marriage from Ephesians 5. The first is that marriage exists to promote covenant love. Marriage is a covenant relationship. In verse 31, Paul quotes this old passage from Genesis 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. If you've heard the old translation, which is leave and cleave, What that really means is is leave and then be joined together as one. And and the word there is covenant. Most, Most literally, it means leave your father and mother and then covenant to your spouse as one new flesh. And so what is a covenant? Biblically speaking, a covenant is a contract that exists to support a relationship. It's a binding promise to to promote another person's good. And so within a contract, contract, biblically speaking, there are two things. One is a binding contract, and the other is passionate love. In our world, we don't often think of binding contracts and passionate love going together. You know, I, I completed my taxes a few months ago, and I did my, my legal obligation. That, that was a binding contract, but I didn't really experience passionate love. The world has sort of shaped our thinking here because we think of passionate love in terms of quick and and emotive, fiery feelings, flaming hormones. But with binding contracts, we might think of legal obligation, serving jury, jury duty, driving within, you know, 15 of the speed limit. But the biblical vision is that passionate love and binding obligation go together. 
That these two things are meant to be one seamless whole within the context of marriage. The Song of Songs in the Old Testament, it's, it's an entire book devoted to this concept. And there's this recurring refrain, I am my beloved's and he is mine. And this is true covenant love. Where a, where a binding promise comes together to support and enable passionate love. We belong to one another. We're committed to one another. And that commitment and that belonging creates an environment where passionate love can flourish. Not just for months or years, but for decades. And so marriage is not about a feeling of being in love, but rather it's a commitment to continue to love. It's a commitment to future love, not just a current feeling. And so true love is not about you, it's not about your needs, it's about committing to love another person through thick and thin. And so the first purpose of marriage is to promote covenant love, and the second is to promote spiritual maturity. Verse 25 says, Husband, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And so just as Jesus loved us, loved the church, and laid down his life moment by moment, and even unto death, laid down his life for us, that's the vision of sacrificial love that promotes spiritual maturity and marriage. So marriage, like all other forms of relationship, is one of God's means of producing holiness and growth and maturity in us. And anybody who's been married more than a decade can say, Amen. But in our marriage, we want to be accepted. We want to be known. We want to be received for who we are. You might also hear sometimes in marriage, I've certainly heard this in marriage counseling, somebody says, this, this is not going well. My spouse is, is not the person I married. Maybe you've heard that. This is not the person I married. But to a certain degree, that actually should be the case in Christian marriage if you are continuing to grow in Christ. Marriage exists to promote our spiritual maturity so that as you grow in marriage, you also grow in Christ and you are continually becoming a different and a more Christ-like person. One of my mentors has said that we're married to about five different people over the course of a marriage. And so in other words, Jesse married the 22-year-old the young and healthy version of me, but now she's married to the late 30s dad joke-telling version of me. Lord willing, one day she'll be married to the, you know, the old, no-hair, baseball-cap-wearing, convertible-driving, you know, newspaper-reading at 5 a.m. version of me. You will be married to different versions of the other person if the other person is growing and changing. And that is one of the purposes of marriage. My favorite book on marriage, the one that we have people read in premarital counseling with us, it's called The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. And in it he writes, Within the Christian vision of marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. It's to look at another person and get a glimpse of what God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you and it excites me. I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. 
Now, from this spiritual maturity purpose of marriage, there are a couple implications for singleness. And the first one is to realize that singleness is not a lesser status in Christianity. Jesus himself never married. The Apostle Paul, who wrote this, never married. And he even said in 1 Corinthians that for many, it will be better not to marry at all. And so marriage is, is meant for our spiritual maturity, but that doesn't mean that one can't become spiritual, spiritually mature without it. It's very possible to enter a marriage too quickly and marry somebody who's not committed to your spiritual maturity. And that is one of the hardest things you can do in life. Now, second, that means if you're single and you're looking for somebody to marry, you need to look for somebody who's committed to your spiritual maturity, to your growth in Christ. In the world, we, we tend to look for all the wrong sorts of characteristics in, in a future spouse. If you think about it, we tend to look for, for attractiveness of, of, you know, kind of wittiness, and, and I joked about it, but sort of future employability, you know, a successful person, social connections, good health, you know, good hair. But the reality is that all of these things that I just mentioned decrease over time. Like all of them, your health will fade, your hair disappears, your education isn't enough, you'll probably lose a job at some point in your life, your health will fade. And so if this is the basis of why you choose your spouse, it's literally all going downhill as soon as you get married. Instead, look for things that will increase, that will grow and flourish in marriage. Look for humility, look for wisdom. Look for perseverance. Look for a person who knows how to have deep friendships. And these things will grow and grow with time so that the person only becomes more and more beautiful. Now, in our culture today, there's an easy way to see that marriage is losing its value. Two ways to see it. The first is that people are getting married less. And the second is that people are getting married later. There was a great book that came out last year, a, a sociologist at the University of Texas, Mark Regnerus. He's done decades of research on marriage, not only in the U.S., but all over the world. And he describes in this book how the major trend is that people now consider marriage to be a capstone event rather than a foundational event. Now, here's what he means by that. A, a foundational life event is like finishing college or getting your first job or going into debt for the first time. It's, it's an essential sort of early life decision that makes you who you are. That's a foundational life event. A capstone life event, on the other hand, is, is a non-essential thing. It's something that you do later in life, like retiring or becoming a grandparent or, or writing a memoir, something that's not essential to your life, but it demonstrates the person that you have been. And so if you think about this in terms of marriage, throughout human history, marriage has always been a foundational life event. People get married in their early 20s or even their late teens, and then they grow up together and figure out life together. But now, not only in the Western culture, but across the world, more people than not are viewing marriage as a capstone event. So they only view marriage and children after they've figured out everything else, after they've finished all of their education and training, after they've gotten their first job. There are interviews in the book where somebody says, I wouldn't even consider marrying somebody that doesn't have six figures of savings in the bank. The assumption is that you'll be fully established in life and then marriage is like the icing on the cake. 
I'll give you just two statistics. I could do a lot more. You know I love statistics. But in the U.S., if you look at the population, 25 to 34 years old, right, 25 to 34. In 1970, 80% of that population was married. But last year, only 40% of that population was married. So a complete uh, halving of marriage has happened in just 50 years. The average age of marriage in 1960 was 21 and a half. And the average age of marriage in the U.S. last year was 32. So more than an entire decade has passed when people are, are now getting married. Now, you may know that the, the introduction of the no-fault divorce happened in 1969, and so that has a, a major effect on marriages when people get married, when they get remarried, and so that factors in here as well. But this sort of capstone view of marriage, it, it's, it's difficult, and, it, and in my mind, it's damaging for a few reasons. There are some assumptions that have to go along with this capstone view of marriage. First of all, it, it views worldly success as a precondition to marriage. Second, it, it assumes that you'll be able to find a great spouse whenever you want it, even if you wait later and later. Third, if you do marry in your 30s, it, it assumes that children will be just as easy to have and it'll be just as easy to raise a family at any age. But then lastly, one of the major implications of this sort of capstone view of marriage is that it means that now people in their 20s and early 30s are typically unmarried, and so the rates of casual sex have gone just through the roof, and not only in the world, but also in the church. And so now in your, your sort of high fertility years, if you're not married, you can imagine that the demand that that puts on you if you're dating and the pressure for Christian singles to lower their standards. Now, if you're, if you're there, if you're in your 20s or 30s and, and unmarried, you, I don't want you to hear this as condemnation. Maybe you want to be married. Instead, I'm describing your reality. How hard it is for you to find a great Christian spouse because of how long people are wanting to wait to get established, to build up their career, to, to figure out who they are, and then maybe at the very end to get married, to, to sort of show the world who you are. This is all part of a broader trend called delayed adolescence. So the purpose, second purpose of marriage, it's to promote our spiritual maturity. And again, being unmarried can also promote our spiritual maturity as well. So the third purpose, first we had covenant love, second spiritual formation. The third is to demonstrate sacrificial love. Ephesians 5 really only gives one principle for how to be married, how to practice marriage. It's a principle called headship, and, and thankfully it's totally uncontroversial. Uh, it's a little joke, it's a little controversial. But it's the idea that men and women are inherently different, and that our gender differences should be considered in how we operate in marriage. And so God wired husbands generally for one set of responsibilities and wives for another within the context of marriage. And so here's verses 21 to 25. Paul writes, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit, to yourselves, or submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, we've been preaching through Ephesians for many weeks, I think 14 weeks or 15 weeks at this point. And so I think that's helpful as we come to this passage on marriage and we see these words on headship and submission to realize that this is in the context of everything that Paul has taught us about the gospel, about who we are in Christ. The first half of Ephesians 5, if you remember back from last week, it starts by saying, follow God's example and walk in the way of love. Walk in the way of Jesus. Walk in this love overflowing. And then the second half of chapter 5 comes as a way of sort of giving specific guidance on what that will look like. And so it's under the sort of big category of walking in love that Paul's instructions for marriage come. All of this fits in the category of love. Headship is a subset of the practice of love within the context of marriage. Now, that means that headship will only thrive in the context of a Christian marriage where love is at the center. You can't, you can't expect the, the world, people who are, are not believers, to, to adopt this principle for their marriage and for it to go very well. Now, headship does not mean that all women submit to all men. We don't believe that's a biblical teaching. Headship doesn't mean that husbands rule over women. And it doesn't even say husbands lead your wives. Did you notice that? It says husbands love your wives. In the same way, this is not promoting a sort of a throwback style of, of marriage that you've seen on, on sitcoms from the 50s or you've, you've witnessed in the, your family in some way. The principle of headship is unlike anything else in all the world. Now, I remember when I was a, a young pastor in, in Louisville, I was only like a year into my pastoral ministry. And just sort of out of the blue, a, a middle-aged guy came up to me in between Sunday services. And uh, he was one of those guys who was kind of shifty. He wasn't a member. He wasn't making eye contact. But he was like, hey, pastor, um, the Bible says that husbands are in charge of wives, right? I was like, well, not exactly. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, it says that husbands are the ones to make the decisions, right? It's like, nah, that's not really how it goes. We could look at it. He's like, I know, I know, I know. I don't have the time. But like, if it really comes down to it, the guy's in charge, right? And I'm like, I think you're in an argument with your wife. And you want to go home and said, yeah, one of the pastors said that, you know, I'm in charge. It's like, and you came and picked the youngest one on staff. I get it. But I'm not going to do that for you today. What does headship mean? It means that husbands are responsible for the spiritual state of the marriage more than women. It means that husbands will be held accountable for the health, depth, and vibrancy of the marriage. And second, that wives should follow in their husband's sacrificial love by submitting to them as they also submit to Christ. You'll notice that, that Paul doesn't go on a, a long tangent about what this should look like. Like, he doesn't give us five examples of headship and submission. That would be really nice. But he doesn't get really specific because it's up to every married couple to apply this principle to their marriage. No, no husband and wife combination is the same as another one. No two personalities are exactly the same. 
And so the husband should always be asking, how can I love my wife like Jesus loves the church, laying down my life for her? And the wife should be asking, how can I love my husband as the church loves Jesus, following his leading? One helpful way maybe to think about it, you may be familiar with uh, philanthropy, right? Philanthropy is when you have uh, an organization or a foundation that exists to just give away like boatloads of money, right? Uh, When we were back in in Louisville, one of our good friends was a full-time philanthropist. Her dad was the CEO of this, like, one of the biggest corporations in the world. You would know it immediately. And so their family's net worth was like a billion dollars, according to Google. I I, I did look it up. (laughs) She was a member of our church, and so as, you know, as the daughter, her full-time job was being the executive director of the family foundation, And could you imagine that, your entire job just being, you know, deciding what to do with hundreds of millions of dollars? They they had decided to give it all away. So her job literally was to just give away money. And it was one of those things where no matter how much money you give away, there's always more left and there's more you can give and more you can give and more you can give. You can imagine who my first phone call was to when we were planning the church. They were very generous and I'm thankful for them. But this is sort of true for us in Christian marriage because we have received so, so, so much love from God. We were saved from our sins. We were dead in our sins, chapter 2 tells us, and God raised us from the dead and breathed his spirit into us and brought us into his family through nothing that we had done on our own. We did nothing to earn it. We did nothing to achieve it. We didn't even really do anything to receive it besides respond in faith. And so we, we should have zero pride in the Christian life. We have received nothing but unconditional love from the Father. And so whether you're a husband or a wife or if you're single, you should be overflowing with love onto all those who are around you, beginning with those who are closest to you. If we're not overflowing with love, if you're married, it's not really a marriage problem. It's it's a problem of spiritual formation. If you're not overflowing with love, it's because you don't yet understand how loved you are and how unconditional that love is that God has for you. And so the process over and over is to remember the love of the Father and and then to share it with your spouse. Share it with your spouse. Now, this is point one. This is the threefold purpose of marriage, to promote covenant love, to promote spiritual maturity, and to promote sacrificial love. Here's the second big thing, the possibility of wholeness. This passage gives us a beautiful and a sort of sweeping vision of marriage, but it also gives us a positive and a beautiful view of sexual wholeness, even though it doesn't explicitly mention it. And so I want to say a few things about the the possibility of sexual wholeness here. And my hope is that wherever you are in life, that this is encouraging and comforting for you. Sex is meant to be a gift shared between a husband and wife, one man, one woman, in the context of a covenant marriage. And yet, even if you aren't married, this sexual wholeness is still possible. 
Of course, we know from Jesus and Paul that sexual wholeness cannot be entirely tied to marriage, that if you aren't married, you can still experience sexual wholeness. Not sexual perfection, that's Christ alone, but wholeness. I've probably said this a number of times before, but in our current evangelical church, we lack a really earthy and and embodied view of spirituality. We don't really understand how our bodies interact with our spiritual formation. The fact that we are embodied souls and our, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that affects the way we relate to God and relate to one another. But it's without this, this mature, embodied, anxiety-free spirituality, we'll never develop a mature, embodied, anxiety-free sexuality. When I was growing up in the church, the only time sexuality was ever taught on was to promote abstinence, to, to promote you know, zero sex outside of marriage, which I absolutely agree with. But the why of abstaining from sex, I don't remember, was, was ever taught at any point. So many young couples, if, if they're able to stay pure before marriage, they, they marry and discover that sex, even within marriage, can be complicated. For those who come to Christ after a season of sexual sin, there's this spiritual scar tissue, there's sexual trauma that's brought into relationships. And so we need a mature embodied, anxiety-free vision of sexuality. Human beings are desiring, longing creatures. We are what we love. And spiritual formation takes place when our desires align with the kingdom of God, when we follow the way of Jesus. And so in the same way, sexual wholeness takes place when our desires align with the kingdom of God when we follow the way of Jesus even with our bodies. At the deep core of sexual desire is the longing to know and to be known by another person. This leads us inevitably back to our our design as as children of God, designed to be known and, and to know the living God, but even more to know and be known by other human beings. And so this is the deep core of sexual desire. It's not power. It's not anything else. You can see all the false substitutes that can be created for this, but at the core, sexual desire is a desire to know and be known by another. And Jesus demonstrates that human flourishing is not tied to marriage and sex. Marriage and sex points us to something greater, that life with God frees us from a shameful view of our bodies and and welcomes us into the fullness of God's love where true belonging exists. And for those who are married, sex is a gift that provides both physical and spiritual nourishment. Now in the church, we can find it really hard to talk about sexual sin. And I believe, as I've seen it in the church, we focus too much on the act of the sin and rather, rather than why somebody's committing the sin. And this is true for all things in the church. And so perhaps if somebody comes to you and, and admits, confesses sexual sin, your first response might be to say, that's, that's wrong, you need to repent from that, you need to confess, you need to change. And that's true, but I think our first response should be, thank you for sharing that. Have you considered what's going on in your heart that led you to this thing? 
what's happening, what is lacking in your heart, where are your desires off base so that you're looking for nourishment outside of God and his kingdom. So often a person is turning to some kind of addiction, whether it's drunkenness, drug use, pornography, sex outside of marriage, when life has become too overwhelming and too painful. It becomes an outlet for pain relief. And then, of course, the outlet continues the pattern of this disordered desire, and it can consume you. And so we need one another to break free of sinful patterns. We really can't do it alone. It's not how we were wired by God. It's why support groups like, like AA exist, why we have community groups and pastors in the church. And so I want to encourage you, somewhere in the church, find a trusted friend with whom you can share anything with. It might be in the context of your community group. It might be somebody that you've known for a while. But find a way to talk about what wholeness looks like for you. Try to uncover the deep desires and longings that that might be leading you to inappropriate behavior so that you can not only confess, but you can properly turn and find healing from sin. Sexual wholeness is possible no matter who you are, what you've done, where you are in life. Christ longs to make you whole. All right, the last thing. There's only one verse left. It's what Paul calls the profound mystery, verse 32. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. All of this marriage talk, everything that we've just heard from Paul, he's saying all of this serves as an illustration for something greater. Now, I don't know if that kind of throws you off as much as it throws me off the reality that all of this is actually just pointing to something else. All of marriage as a human institution from God exists as an example of something else, an illustration to point us to something else. And that something else is the coming marriage supper of Christ in the church. You can think over the storyline of the Bible. The Bible opens with a wedding as God presents his daughter Eve to Adam. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this image of God being wed to Israel. There was a period in church history where Song of Songs, it was understood to be the gospel chapter, the gospel book of the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we see that Christ leads and he lays down his life for his bride, the church. He told his followers there would be no marriage and eternal life because in essence we are all married to Christ. This is is the big thing, the big reveal, like like on those shows where they've remodeled the house and then they pull the things back and everybody's like, wow, this is that moment in Ephesians 5. And it's that marriage doesn't exist as anything else than a a vision of the gospel, an illustration of the gospel. So in other words, the gospel doesn't show us what marriage is like, but marriage exists to show us something true of the gospel. It exists to show us what true love is like, what our eternal status will look like in heaven, in the new creation, where we are wed with Christ and one with him. Marriage exists to give us a picture of salvation. Revelation 19 says this at the very end. 
John writes from his vision, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given for her to wear. And then the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. The Bible begins with a wedding and it ends with a wedding. All of human life, all of creation is pointing to a final once-for-all wedding ceremony. And so human marriage, as, as one of the primary demonstrations of this, is so important, and it should, be, it should be elevated and protected and guarded, and yet we also see that it is not the main thing in life. It's an illustration to point us to our eternal union with Christ. It shows us the incredible purposes of marriage. I mean, it elevates all of these things, covenant love, sexual wholeness, sacrificial love, spiritual formation. All of this points us to the fact that we are each and every one of us getting ready for our wedding day. Like we are literally, we should be living in in wedding prep mode all the time. If you've been around engaged people, you know when they're in wedding prep mode, that should be us all the time. There's a level of focus. There's an excitement and anticipation. That should be our life in this world. This is a profound mystery, Paul says. And it points us to this true love. Again, not that you are are who you are because of your greatest accomplishments and your best days, but because of who you are, even at your worst, your most basic self, in your weakness, in in your nothingness, still you are loved. Still you have been chosen. Still God lavishes this unconditional love upon you as you are preparing for the wedding feast of the Lamb. Covenant love, our covenant love in marriage, it's just a dim illustration of the covenant love that God has made with us. Nothing can break one of God's covenants. And so we know that the love that he has for us is true, eternal, and everlasting. It's the truest of true loves. It's God's love for you in Christ. Let's pray.